Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, April 21st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the governor addresses the ongoing pandemic. And poultry is Mississippi's largest agricultural product. We look at the impact COVID-19 and how the latest tornado outbreak is affecting output. Then the COVID-19 crisis threatens to bankrupt and close struggling hospitals in the rural south. Plus, 10 years later, how marine wildlife are recovering from the Gulf South's largest environmental disaster. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. State government and health officials are reminding Mississippians to follow guidance on preventing the spread of the coronavirus. The State Department of Health reported 238 new cases of the coronavirus yesterday and Sunday saw the highest daily increase of 300 new cases. But Governor Tate Reeves says these are not indicators of an upward trend and the state is reaching a plateau in infection rates. As we look at our data in Mississippi, Uh, It is very clear that our curve is flattening. That plateau is at a level where our health care system is not stretched. It is not in a position in which we are having to turn away patients. And we will have, um, hopefully, when all is said and done, protected the integrity of our health care system, ensuring that we meet our goal. And our goal has always been every single Mississippian that needs access to quality care to recover and can recover, gets that quality care, and to date, that has been the case. As the state continues to work towards slowing the spread, State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says he is concerned about residents who are not following guidance. He says that residents have the opportunity to determine their own future by being steadfast. I mean, we're still kind of in the meat of the plateau, right? So there's still a lot of cases going on. It certainly could rebound. We are very, very concerned about outbreaks in settings where people are close together. This could be in a situation such as a a congregate setting, nursing home. So we're watching that very closely and trying to make sure that we respond to those aggressively and even more aggressively as we go into the coming weeks. 
but also to work environments where people are in close proximity to one another. It's very possible for outbreaks to occur. So we want to be very careful about that. Strongly encourage patients for everyone in the community, whether if you've been placed on a quarantine order or if you're a business that's having to face one of these things, we know how challenging it can be. But it's so very important, especially right now. This is not going to be this way forever. But right now, while we're still in the plateau of our peak, we need to make sure we don't let our guard down. So please exercise patience as we get through this this part of our of our epidemic. We can hope, right, that over the next few weeks we'll start to see a decline. But it's dependent upon a lot of things. You know, what happens in areas where people have transmission? Do people change their behavior? Do people let their guard down? You know, uh, big box stores are still pretty crowded. It makes me very nervous. And I'm not seeing a lot of folks wearing masks in the community necessarily. So, you know, please, hand hygiene, social distancing, wear masks when you're out in public and around folks. Um, a lot of it depends on what we do collectively, and uh, we can determine our own future. With projections indicating a flattening of the curve, Governor Reeves is poised to begin slowly reopening segments of Mississippi's economy. He says the state is working on a long-term strategy to get residents back to work. We went into this shelter-in-place order um, in a methodical way to ensure that we maintain the safety of Mississippians, but also uh, did minimal economic damage, if at all possible. But we also recognize that over the last three weeks, we've had approximately between 130 and 140,000 Mississippians file for unemployment insurance. Uh, That is an unacceptable position to be in. Uh, Many of those individuals have never been on unemployment in their life. Many of them are scared, uh, not only for their health because of the virus, they're also scared because of their economic health uh, and the plight that they find themselves in in many, many, many instances to no fault of their own. We recognize that and we're working to to build a plan and a long-term strategy to get our economy moving again. National health experts are pointing to extensive testing measures as a guideline for reopening America. Dr. Thomas Dobbs says that while testing must be ramped up as people return to work, resources still must be used judiciously. Everybody who wants a test doesn't need a test. Everybody who needs a test needs a test. And um, if we if we really wanted to make sure that no one had COVID, we would test every Mississippian every day for a month. Obviously, we don't have the capacity to do um, 90 million tests, right? Because if I'm negative today, I could easily be positive tomorrow or the next day or the next. So just randomly checking people for the virus with the nasal swab is not an effective way to use our resources whatsoever. Um, but people who have symptoms definitely need to be checked. And we're looking to people who've been exposed may well need to be checked. So there's a different sort of tiering of of the necessity of testing folks. And we're working to spread that out absolutely. The Mississippi Department of Health is continuing its aggressive testing strategy this week through additional one-day collection sites. Two sites will be available today, one in Yazoo County at the Wardell Leach Recreational Complex in Yazoo City, the other in Montgomery County at the Winona Recreation and Parks Building in Winona. Anyone experiencing symptoms related to COVID-19 and feels they should be tested must first go through a free screening from a UMMC clinician through the C Spire Health UMMC triage app. Coming up, poultry is Mississippi's largest agricultural product. We look at the impact COVID-19 and the latest tornado outbreak and how they're affecting output. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. 
Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Chickens account for the largest portion of Mississippi's agricultural economy. From live production to processing, the poultry industry has footholds all over the state of Mississippi. Food processing and distribution remain essential businesses, but are under a tighter lens after Smithfield Farms, a pork processing plant in South Dakota, had to close down due to COVID-19 outbreak. Mississippi chicken farmers are also reeling from destruction brought on from the Easter tornadoes, most notably at Sanderson Farms Complex in Collins. Tom Tabler is the Poultry Extension Service Specialist at Mississippi State University. He tells us how Mississippi's poultry industry is coping with the recent challenges. That complex, at least at last report of what I had, had lost right around 200,000 head of birds. My goodness. Now, now, 200,000 head sounds like a lot of birds, and it is a lot of birds, especially for Sanderson Farms, especially for those growers that are affected, that lost farms, that lost chickens. But from the consumer's standpoint, and, and just so folks won't worry about the fact that this is going to cause chicken prices to spike because of all of this damage, 200,000 head is a lot for Sanderson. It's a lot for their growers. But it's a very small number in terms of the Mississippi poultry industry as a whole. How many chickens would one of those houses hold? The age of the house will, in some degree, determine what size that house is. The newer the houses, the bigger the houses, it seems like. You know, a new house built today is probably going to be somewhere in the range of 46 to 50 feet wide and 500 to 600 feet long. But a house that was built maybe 15, 20 years ago might have only been 40 to 42 feet wide and maybe only 400 feet long. So again, how old that house is is going to kind of determine what size that house is. And again, a 40 by 400 foot house, that's 16,000 square feet of floor space, it might have... 16 to 18,000 chickens in it. But a 50 by 500 foot house that has 25,000 square feet of floor space in it might have 25 to 27,000 birds in that house. So again, it depends on what size the house is in terms of how many chickens are in each house. Okay. Now, what about COVID-19, the coronavirus? Has that affected chicken production? Well, it, it, not any more so than, than what it's affected anybody else. Again, the chicken industry has best they can are, are trying to follow guidelines in terms of social distancing and, and all of the other stuff folks are being asked to do right now. But again, the agricultural industry, the food industry is one of those industries that the government has deemed essential to keep the country going. And again, people have got to eat food, and chickens are part of that. You know, it's no different from the pork people or the beef people. The farmers are keeping the rest of us fed right now. So business still has to go on. You know, 
processing plants are still processing birds every day. Hatcheries are still hatching baby chicks every day. Feed mills are still making feed every day, but as best they can, you know, they're doing it within, you know, the social distancing and, and following all the recommendations in terms of sanitation and, and, and cleaning and, and hand sanitizing and hand washing that we can to try to, you know, keep the country fed but still practice what the government is asking folks to do. You know, I think people who are essential employees are working a little bit with fear or apprehension. Is that the case with poultry workers? Well, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's it's the same way with anybody that's trying to work these days. I don't care whether they're in a in a processing plant or they're home with their kids trying to homeschool their kids when they're not, you know, designed to be teachers or designed to be homeschoolers. Everyone's stress level right now is up. You know, and, and again, I don't care what segment of the population you're in, whether you're in agriculture, whether you're in business, whatever section you're in, things are different now. And and everybody's stress level is higher than what it, you know, used to be back before Christmas or before Thanksgiving. Again, we've got to adapt to whatever is going to be the new normal. It sounds like the final word, though, in terms of Mississippians, we don't have to worry about the chicken supply. We will have our chicken. If you look at the state as a whole, last year, the state of Mississippi, the poultry industry in Mississippi, processed 756 million broilers last year. Again, poultry is the state's biggest agricultural commodity. has been for a long time, probably will be in the future for a long time. And 200,000 head to the state as a whole, 200,000 head is less than one day's run for one processing plant in this state. So consumers already have enough to worry about with what's going on with the coronavirus and everything else they're dealing with these days. They shouldn't have to worry about the price of chicken skyrocketing at the store because this loss is not enough to drive the price of chicken up. Tom Tabler is the Poultry Extension Service Specialist at Mississippi State University. Tom, thank you so much for being with us. You bet, Chip. Coming up, the COVID-19 crisis threatens to bankrupt and close struggling hospitals in the rural South. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. For hospitals in rural areas like the Deep South, the COVID-19 crisis is not only threatening to overwhelm their ICUs with patients seeking treatment. As Travis Lux reports, the pandemic could also force many of them to close. Here's how one doctor describes the hospital they work at. Eerily quiet. The cafeteria, the gift shop, the main lobby, there's no one around. No family, no visitors because of strict guidelines. But when you go to the ER, they say, it's a whole other world. You go to a floor, every single patient room is filled. You go to an ICU, all you hear are people coding and losing pulses. You hear people running all over. There's ventilators buzzing everywhere. I mean, it's total chaos. This doctor practices emergency medicine at a hospital in rural Louisiana. 
They're not allowed to talk to the media, so we're not revealing their identity, and we're using a voiceover. We're taking these precautions because doctors have been fired for speaking out, but we verified this one's identity. They say most of the patients in their hospital are being treated for COVID-19 right now. And that's the concerning part, is that I already don't have beds to admit people to. Rural populations are particularly vulnerable to this virus. They tend to be older, and they have more underlying health conditions. So you might think that hospitals would be adding staff to meet the crisis head on. But this doctor's rural hospital is actually doing the opposite. It's reducing staff. We also spoke with a nurse practitioner at the same hospital. Again, we're using voiceover to protect their identity. You don't cut hours in the middle of a pandemic. Not being able to provide care for someone that really needs it, all over a bottom line, money is extremely frustrating and disappointing. My greatest concern is that hospitals are going to start closing, not because of um, anything that's their fault, but because we have a shutdown right now and they make most of their money off of stuff that they're not actually able to do. Ryan Kelly is executive director of both the Mississippi Rural Health Association and the Alabama Rural Health Association. States across the country have banned elective procedures like hip replacement surgeries and physical therapy to make sure their hospitals have enough staff and PPE to handle the surge of COVID patients. The trouble is, Kelly says, in our current health care system, those procedures are the money makers for most rural hospitals. And if your hospital makes 75 percent of its money off of these outpatient programs that are now almost non-existent, I mean, it's not a, a it, death by a thousand cuts. It's death by a thousand, you know, gunshots now. I mean, they are they are bleeding very, very fast. Rural hospitals have been in financial trouble for years. According to a recent report from the Chartist Group, a healthcare consulting company, more than 100 rural hospitals have closed since 2010. A whopping 453, roughly a quarter of all the rural hospitals identified in the report, are at risk of closing right now. Dr. Roger Ray works for Chartist. He says the financial strain is hurting hospitals everywhere, both urban and rural. The difference is that urban hospitals tend to have more money in the bank, up to a year's worth of cash on hand. The average, I think, before COVID uh, for rural hospitals was about 30 days cash on hand, and for some it was single digits. According to the Chartist report, several southern states have high percentages of rural hospitals at risk of closing. Louisiana is in the best shape. 16% of its rural hospitals are vulnerable. In Alabama, it's 38%. Mississippi is most at risk, with 42% of its rural hospitals vulnerable to closing. Last month, Congress passed the CARES Act. That's the bill that's sending $1,200 stimulus checks to most people. That bill also included $100 billion for hospitals, basically just bags of cash to keep their doors open. Mark Kelly, who heads Mississippi and Alabama's Rural Health Associations, says that'll be a big help for rural hospitals. But the question is how long that money will last. My personal clock says if we last past May, we're in deep trouble. And of course, it's not just money that's causing stress right now. As the nurse practitioner told us, there's no telling when they'll be able to hug and kiss their family and their friends once again. You know, in South Louisiana, that's what we do. There's no, like... Hey, from a distance, you got to give a hug. They pause for a second as they wonder when life will go back to normal. In New Orleans, I'm Travis Lux. Coming up, 10 years later, how marine wildlife are recovering from the Gulf South, Gulf South's largest environmental disaster. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. The Deepwater Horizon explosion 10 years ago brought lasting damage to the Gulf of Mexico's ecosystems. Through restoration efforts and comprehensive research made possible through penalties paid by BP and other responsible parties, more is known about how vital Gulf species have responded in the decade since the region's largest environmental disaster. In its report, 10 Species 10 Years Later, the National Wildlife Federation explores the impact of the spill on a wide scope of ecosystems. Johnny Marquez is the organization's coastal policy and program director. He shares parts of the report, beginning with the endangered bride's whale. The estimation was that they lost nearly 17% of the population. So they're they're one that's on the brink of extinction. Um, and, you know, the exposure to the oil for them is with the, the bottlenose dolphins. We believe that, you know, the whales and dolphins themselves that were exposed were uh, harmed or killed and that it's, you know, uh, left them with reproductive issues going forward. So those are permanent that reproductive abilities have been hampered or actually um, worse than that for whales and dolphins? Well, they've been they've been hampered. They've shown you know uh, reproductive issues, uh, immune system problems, um, you know their ability to fight off uh, other disease and infection is hampered. So it you know it puts the population at risk, and that's been seen in the dolphins not only that were exposed but in their offspring that they've continued to, to carry some of those traits. Dolphins were dolphins were killed directly from the oil spill, but also there have been long-term effects over the last 10 years. Are they, are they getting better or are there still long-term effects? Well, we, we believe that they're getting get better and they're improving. You know, they were impacting in multiple ways. Um, you know, dolphins in particular, um, when you look at not only their exposure to the oil directly and what it, you know, how it may have impacted them through dolphin deaths and impacting their system, but you know, dolphins are also a um, much more of a coastal um, mammal and inhabit our marshes and use that for feeding ground. And so, the the damage to the marsh and their habitat was also extensive. Um, you know, many of those dolphins reside in. You know, the Louisiana Marsh Complex right here, where um, aside from the oil spill, is already experiencing some of the largest land loss anywhere um, due to a variety of factors, which was just exacerbated by the oil spill. Are corals considered wildlife? They are. You know, there's that's one of the things that highlights the, uh, I would say, is a, a highlight of the spill. Highlights probably not the best word to use, but... Um, you know, that we have many species and environments that we just, because of where they are, we don't have 
uh, terrific knowledge about them. So um, in the northern part of the Gulf, uh, you know, most of those corals you'd be talking about were deep-sea corals um, in, in great depths. So our, you know, knowledge and mapping of where those are is, is not as good as it might be in shallow water environments. Um, but they are certainly all part of that uh, ecosystem and uh, everything that, that builds in that that food chain, whether it's a deep water environment or shallow water environment. Mississippi is set to receive, when all is said and done, $2 billion as a result of the oil spill and the damages. Is enough money being targeted towards the restoration of wildlife in the Gulf? If there's a silver lining in any of this, an unprecedented opportunity to put that money towards restoration of wildlife and habitat. Um, you know, the hard thing, I think, for for, uh, for many is that type of restoration work. You want to see, people want to see projects moving, what's happening. One thing I would say in Mississippi that um, this bill highlighted is sort of the holes in, holes in our science and our knowledge. Um, you know, what do we have this stock assessments? What did we know about the environment? And, you know, a lot of work is being put into um, that modeling and research and to help ensure that as these funds continue to flow over the next 15 years, that we're deploying them on projects that will be, uh, you know, long-lasting, uh, transformational, um, and, and projects that will have a lasting impact. Johnny Marquez is the Director of Coastal Policy and Programs for the National Wildlife Federation. Johnny, thank you for being with us. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.